Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Welcome. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. In this chapter, we have one of the primary accounts of the ratifying of the Mosaic Covenant. In addition to Exodus 34, uh, we see parts of this ratification in Exodus 20, Exodus 24, Deuteronomy 5, and Deuteronomy 27 and 28. <clears throat> so we'll begin reading in verse 1. <clears throat> now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones. And Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him. And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant. Before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth nor among any of the nations. And all the people among whom you live will see the working of the Lord. For it is a fearful thing that I am going to perform with you. Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. <clears throat> Behold, I'm going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch yourself that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. For you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Otherwise, you might make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they would play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods. And someone might invite you to eat of his sacrifice. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods, you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread. For seven days you are to eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you, at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in the month of Abib you came out of Egypt. The first offspring from every womb belongs to me, and all your male livestock, the first offspring from cattle and sheep. You shall redeem with a lamb the first offspring from a donkey. And if you do not redeem it, then you shall break its neck. You shall redeem all the firstborn of your sons. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall work six days, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even during the plowing time and harvest, you shall rest. You shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks, that is, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the turn of the year. Three times a year all your to appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel, for I will drive out the nations before you and enlarge your borders, and no man will covet your land when you go up three times a year to appear before the Lord your God. 
You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with leavened bread, nor is the sacrifice of the feast of Passover to be left over until morning. You shall bring the very first of the first fruits of your soil into the house of the Lord your God, the young goat and its mother's milk. Then the Lord said to Moses, Write down these words. For in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So we see here, again, an account of this Mosaic covenant being ratified. And we see in it a mixture of things related to the Ten Commandments, a mixture of things related to ceremonial law. Uh, and it's important that we see these side by side and recognize that um, if we just took this passage at face value and interpreted all of these as being equal commands, uh, as being all moral commands, we would greatly err. The rest of uh, the Pentateuch gives instruction on what is moral, what is ceremonial, and what is judicial. And we're going to talk this morning about the Mosaic Covenant. We're going to talk about uh, the purpose behind this covenant, uh, the different types of laws within it, and trying to understand it in light of not just the Abrahamic covenant and the covenant of works, but also in light of what scripture says about itself. Uh, we'll be looking uh, also at the Davidic covenant and briefly at the new covenant before we uh, continue on into some more introductory material. Uh, before we begin uh, looking at the Mosaic covenant, let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have been given an infallible, preserved record of your working and of your revelation in times past. Father, give us ears to hear, hearts to understand why you have worked and revealed yourself in the ways that you have. Help us to understand these things rightly. Help us, Father, to, to see uh, what your word has to say about uh, your covenants with the nation of Israel and your purpose in and through it. And uh, Father, as we look at the Mosaic and the Davidic covenants, uh, pray, Father, that you'd help us to see them rightly. And as we look briefly at the new covenant, Father, may we, we see the, 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 the better nature of that covenant and how uh, wonderful it is that we live under that covenant and not during uh, these other covenant systems. Father, thank you that your word reveals everything that we need in order to understand these covenants rightly. You haven't given truth and then left it up to ourselves to, to figure it out. Thank you that your word uh, interprets itself, scripture interpreting scripture. Pray that you help us this morning to understand these things rightly. Father, that we would understand your word better and be able to read it better and understand what it's teaching better. For your honor and glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. So last week, we looked at the covenant of works and the Abrahamic covenant, looking at the connection between those. And just as a brief summary of reminder, um, the covenant of works was that covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, uh, and it included the uh, moral law that was written upon his heart that bound him and his descendants to personal, perfect, perpetual, and exact obedience. Adam fell and violated not just that positive law of not eating of the tree, but he violated all of the other moral laws that God wrote upon his heart. And that one action, he broke this covenant, and then upon him and his descendants, all of us, all men at all times, fell under the consequences and the curse of that covenant violation. And because of that, sin is in the world. Death is in the world. And yet God was pleased, in spite of that, to come to men and reveal himself and make new covenants that would be a means by which man could be in relationship with him. Covenants that would point ahead to his ultimate goal in his relationship with men, making men right with him through the work of Christ and through the saving grace that's available in the new covenant. We looked at the Abrahamic covenant last time and that the Abrahamic covenant Bound all who received circumcision with that same personal, perfect, perpetual, in order to uh, maintain access to the promises that God had given of land and remaining the people of God. And that that Abrahamic covenant, in a sense, uh, republished, reminded the people 
that they were still under that covenant of works, that the moral law was still upon their hearts and was binding upon them. Uh, in future, we're going to look at evidence for the knowledge of the moral law uh, during the time period of Abraham and before Mount Sinai. And yet, today, our goal is just kind of a brief summary to introduce us uh, to these things. And that God covenanted with Abraham and his descendants these things. And in marking off these people with circumcision, binding them to obedience, marking them off to be a people who would not intermarry with peoples around them, which we heard uh, reestablished in the Mosaic Covenant in the chapter we read, that they were not to intermarry among the peoples near them, so that that line would be pure, and we'd be very clear that the Messiah had come through that line, through the descendants of Abraham, according to what God had promised. But that, that Abrahamic covenant is not the covenant of grace. It's not an administration of the covenant of grace. It is an administration of um, the meaning of the covenant of works, even though it's not the covenant of works. That the people, in being bound to obedience, had to externally keep what God had commanded, to walk before him and be blameless, keeping all that God had bound upon their hearts that circumcision doubly bound them to. And yet, the Abrahamic covenant not being the covenant of grace because there was no saving grace given, the people themselves were required to keep all of the conditions of that covenant themselves, which is different than the new covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is no different. It, it basically fits in and around the Abrahamic Covenant, reaffirms the things that the Abrahamic Covenant established, and then expanded upon it, adding to it more laws. Not just the moral law, not just that law of circumcision, but it added to it ceremonial laws and judicial laws. We read a little bit about some of those in Exodus 34 this morning. Just as the Abrahamic covenant was not the covenant of grace, not an administration of the covenant of grace, so too is the Mosaic covenant. Just as the parts and pieces of the Abrahamic covenant through types and shadows preached the gospel and the new covenant to Abraham and the descendants of Abraham, the Mosaic covenant also through types and shadows preached the gospel to the nation of Israel. All of the ceremonial and judicial laws were given to preach the gospel to them. All of the sacrificial laws, all of the meticulous things that you read in uh, the Pentateuch about uh, offering up this animal in this way and what to do with the entrails, what to do with the blood, all of that procedure was pointing to Christ. And that every time those sacrifices were offered, the people would recognize the insufficiency Time and time and time again, they would see that there was a need for a better sacrifice. The priesthood established within that ceremonial law functioned to point to Christ. A priesthood that in the old covenant system uh, was established in a, a, a way that it was temporary. The priesthood members died. The priesthood members were not free from corruption. There were purification laws that they had to go through to make themselves pure and able to offer up sacrifices. Hebrews tells us that in the new covenant, the better high priest entered in once, becoming himself the better sacrifice, offering it up once on behalf of many. The temple system, the presence of God on earth, whether it be in the mobile tabernacle or the later temple, was pointing to the greater reality of all of God's people being the temple of God, the presence of God dwelling with each individual believer. No longer people having to go to a physical location to worship God. We read a little bit about that, those three times a year that the male Jews had to go and present themselves before God. That was binding upon them all the way up through the time of Jesus. But in the new covenant, uh, there is no need to go to a physical location to worship God. 
can worship God anywhere in spirit and in truth. And that this Mosaic covenant in its ceremonial laws was pointing Christ, all of them, which is why all these ceremonial laws passed away when Christ, type, the things the type, uh, the types and shadows were pointing to came, all of those types became inferior, no longer necessary, which is why there is no need for animal sacrifices. There's no need for a physical temple. There's no need for a physical priesthood. So the Mosaic Covenant, just like the Abrahamic Covenant, was in place to lead the people to Christ, to point them to him, to reveal more about the gospel, to reveal more about the coming new covenant, to build upon the revelation that had been given to Adam in Genesis 3.15. Building upon that, that was given to Abraham and to Moses, building all the way up until we reach the Davidic covenant, a covenant that, again, fit within that same covenant structure, a covenant that, just like the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenant, bound the people to obedience, once again republishing the moral law and binding them to it for blessings that were temporal. Mosaic covenant, the promise was given to them that they could remain in the land, continue to be God's people, and continue within that covenant system if they obeyed. The giving of the law was followed by going to Mount Abal and Mount Gerizim, where the nation was divided and stood on the mountain and shouted back and forth uh, from those peaks, the blessings of the covenant keeping and the curses of the covenant breaking. Those things bound the people to obedience that they would continue to remain in possession of all that God has. And we know the story. We know that they were continually unfaithful even before they entered into the promised land, right? The spies that were sent out, only Joshua and Caleb believed God's word. The rest appraised things through the eyes of men. And so God allowed that generation to perish in the wilderness. And then that new generation goes in and begins to take possession of the land. We see through Joshua their unfaithfulness, not doing all that God commanded. And yet you see the mercy of God. He didn't wipe them out like he did the previous generation. We get to the time of the judges, where scripture says that every man did what seemed right in his own eyes. That is a scary indictment. It seems innocuous, but it's meaning that every man did what seemed right to him. It doesn't say that he was that men were living in connection with the obedience that God had pressed upon them in the law. And we see that disobedience time and time and time again, God sending the Philistines and the people um, reforming until in the divided kingdom, God began to send prophets to these people, warning them um, that God's patience uh, was coming to an end. And yet prophet after prophet going to the northern and the southern kingdom, uh, those kingdoms did not listen. They would not repent. Evil king after evil king. Even though the descendants of Abraham were bound to obedience so that they could remain in the land, remain the people of God, and continue to have a descendant of David upon the throne, and the curses that were given to them as a warning, those things were not motivation enough to keep the covenant. They sinned, they violated Again and again, they rejected the warnings of coming judgment. And so what did God do? He brought upon them the curses that were warned to them. The northern kingdom succumbed first. The Assyrians came in, wiped out the northern kingdom, and carried off ten of the tribes into captivity. Of those ten, none returned. They were cut off permanently from being the people of God. They were cut off permanently from the land. They stand as an example of what God does with covenant violators, covenant breakers. They stand as a testimony to the truthfulness of God's promises, both for good 
and for a curse. The southern kingdom was a little bit more faithful at times. They actually had faithful kings, but in the end, they rejected the warnings from God, and they too succumbed to the Babylonians who came in, wiped out the southern kingdom, and carried off the rest of those two tribes into captivity. And even in captivity, there was a lack of repentance. And yet, God in his kindness, after 70 years, brought them back to the land. Even though they deserved the same treatment that the other ten tribes received, God still had mercy. He still had a purpose in and through them. It was bringing the Messiah into the world. So he brought back those two tribes, but not all of those two. It's believed that it was a minority of those who had gone off into captivity. The rest remained and became part of the Jews of the dispersion, dispersed throughout the world. We see in this God's faithfulness to his word. Blessing would come upon those who keep the covenant. Curse would come upon those who broke it. That God could even cut off permanently those who had entered into the covenant by circumcision. Showing that circumcision did not mean one remained forever in that covenant. Obedience was the means by which they remained in it. Is it safe to say that of those dispersed Jews, though, that some either themselves or their descendants later became truly true believers? I think it is very possible that um, there were some that did. Um, Paul's missionary journeys were primarily directed initially towards the Jews of the dispersion. Um, And that there were still some Jews who, even though they lived other places, they still, from time to time, would come back and participate in worship. Uh, We see that on the day of Pentecost. All of those different people groups that are mentioned there from all of these different regions, these are Jews of the dispersion that have come back to worship, even though they're no longer participating in the blessings of the covenant because they're cut off from the land, um, no longer considered the people of God. And yet, just like the Mosaic Covenant, with types and shadows is pointing to Christ, the Davidic Covenant is doing the same thing. Sorry, real quick. Yes, Dusty. Did you, did you say, so with the other ones, you had said that they were national covenants. Mm-hmm. Moses, the Mosaic is a national covenant. Yes. Okay. And the Davidic Covenant is as well. Made with a specific people group, only to that group of people. The promise was given that if the people walked in obedience to the law of God and what he commanded them, that a descendant of David would remain upon the throne. The exiles brought that to an end. A descendant of David. And yet in and through that, just like the Mosaic Covenant through types and shadows was pointing ahead to what would come in through Christ and in the one new covenant of grace. The Davidic covenant was pointing ahead to the king that would come, a descendant of David who would remain upon that throne himself forever. A perfect king who would judge justly and reign righteously. And it was a means by which the gospel was being more clearly revealed. Again, by farther steps, expanding deeper. Until we arrive at the new covenant and all of those types and shadows pointing to this one new covenant of grace, Christ came and his blood was shed, ratifying and establishing that new covenant. And it was at that point that all of these Old Testament covenants fell away. The only ones that remained in force were the way at covenant, promise made with all of mankind that God would no longer destroy the world with a flood again. The only other covenant in addition to that that remained in force was the covenant of works. That man either had to live by the law or he died by it. The new covenant coming in brought in the work of Christ his perfect keeping of the covenant of works being offered to mankind. It's been said that the new covenant is really an affirmation of the covenant of works, that it is technically a works-based covenant. 
but it's the work of Christ, offered graciously and freely to all who will trust in him. It's because he did all that Adam failed to do that we have hope. He was born under the law so that he would keep it and win for those who were chosen righteousness that would give them a right standing before God. And so that's, that's a summary of the covenants. And as you see on the slide behind me, all of these covenants are expanding, getting bigger, displaying more clearly the new covenant that would come and would be established. The Noahic, the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, and the Davidic covenant are not the covenant of grace. They are revealing it by farther steps until, in the words of the 1689, the full discovery, the full discovery thereof. That when Christ died on the cross, that new covenant was established in his blood. And those in the Old Testament who had believed upon Christ were found to have already been participants in this new covenant, even before it was ratified and established. They were saved with the same blood, looking to the same Savior. Yeah, God has always kept a remnant for himself. Uh, in Romans, I think it's Romans 11, Paul talks about, has, has God's work towards the Jews failed? And his argument is no, because he has always preserved a remnant. And he uses the example from the Old Testament, the 700 who he kept for him, was it 7,000? Um, who had not bowed the knee uh, to Baal. And that God had always kept a remnant for himself. Yes, 7,000. And that Paul uses that as an example to, to demonstrate that God at all times had kept for himself a remnant. That even when the nation and the divided kingdom was uh, destroyed through the conquest and the exile, there were those who were faithful. You think of Daniel and Ezekiel prophesying during the exile. You think of Nehemiah, who was in the exile serving uh, the Persian kings was a faithful man um, all the way up until uh, the time of Christ those who were in the temple that morning when his parents entered to offer the sacrifice in light of his birth um, Simeon Anna they were they knew who they were looking for they were faithful people and that God has kept a remnant for himself all the way throughout history it's always been a people for himself. Um, and someday, when we study eschatology, we'll talk about the relationship of Israel and the church. The church has not replaced Israel. The church is Israel. He who is a Jew is not one who is one outwardly, but he is one who is one inwardly, who has experienced circumcision of heart and generation. Yes? No, they were uh, intended to be understood temporally, initially. Uh, that promise of that physical piece of land, uh, that land being itself a type and a shadow of something far greater. You know, Abraham looked through that promise and saw the far-off country, uh, the promise uh, that Jesus, the attitudes, inheriting the heavens and the earth, new heavens and new earth. And so the land promise was always designed um, to be earned and maintained through temporal obedience to the law, but it functioned as a type and shadow pointing to something greater, the spiritual reality, uh, demonstrating to the people that, that this physical piece of land is not it. There's something greater, which is why when Christ came and the new covenant is established, um, that type and shadow fell away and was no longer uh, a necessary thing. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, I guess the thing that I would I, my question is is then is then the remnants were preserved mm -hmm. by grace through additional covenants off by the work of Christ. Mm -hmm. They still didn't receive those temporal promises because they were only operating in the aspect of the covenant of grace at that point, right? 
Yeah, so they were participants in the covenant of grace, the new covenant. Um, but remember that um, the Old Testament covenants were corporate. As the nation went, so went everything for the people. And those who were faithful, those who uh, heard the prophets and repented, um, the nation as a whole did not repent. And the judgment that came upon the nation as a whole uh, was something that even the faithful ones experienced. Was there another question? Jeremy? So when I talk to my dispensational friends, um, the, the, point that, the point that you just made that, that comes up as, as a real difficult one for them because they don't see this in Scripture and they can't figure out how to figure out in Scripture is that all of those from Abraham up until the time of Christ were saved looking forward to Christ. Um, and, and for them, that's just, that simply doesn't work, right? Yeah. Uh, so have some scripture you pull out specifically that speaks clearly to that? Hebrews 11 is good. Um, Romans 4. Romans 4. There are several places in Romans that I, I go to. Um, Galatians 5 is good. Uh, I like going to uh, Romans 8 and then into Romans 9. Um, I feel like for the dispensationalists, um, one of the most important things to do in response to um, their struggle with how are believers in the Old Testament saved, uh, you have to demonstrate the New Testament interpretation of how they came to believe. Um, and that's what Hebrews does. Hebrews is very, very helpful, and there are places in Romans that are very helpful. And yes, Romans 4 is very helpful. Uh, I think Romans 4 is the, the, the place that I, I would begin. Um, because it's there that he uh, begins to deal with um, what the promises made to Abraham and his heirs truly, uh, truly mean, and that it's by faith, um, which totally destroys this idea of salvation by any other way. Because if it is by faith, even for the descendants of Abraham, then there is no um, merit-based system of any kind that people are saved by. Um, and if you're able to establish that, um, I take people back to Genesis 17. Abraham believed God. What did he believe? And then Hebrews uh, is very enlightening, and Romans is too. Yeah. Mike? Did you have a question, Mike? And then we'll go to Kelly. They were a product of the uh, society they lived in that believed that these promises made to them were just temporal realities, giving them privilege. Um, and I think reading John 3 and, and Jesus speaking to Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, and, and telling him, no, that, that's, that's not it. You have to be regenerated in order to, to truly be of the people of God. So... Yeah, and Jesus' teaching was continually targeting that um, terrible error on their part, uh, the Jewish pride uh, and um, their, their privilege as they saw it. So, Kelly? No, there is no replacement of um, the Jewish people. Uh, the church is Israel. The church is Israel. Um, Paul is very clear, uh, 11 and following. Um, and that's, that's a, a difficult subject with a lot of nuance that I don't want to dive too deeply into. My hope is once we get into um, the Abrahamic covenant, Spend a little bit of time talking about that distinction for you. Um, I know, I know, it is a big issue. Um, I do not believe in uh, replacement theology, the church replacing Israel. Um, 
the promises made to the nation of Israel were primarily temporal, not spiritual, um, and that they forfeited them through their lack of obedience. And then Christ enters in, and all those temporal promises that were pointing to, uh, through types and shadows to Christ, they fall away. Uh, that every promise God has made to Israel has been fulfilled in and through by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rejection of him um, is a rejection of everything that those covenants stood for and represented and spoke to them. Um, and so in Romans 11, when Paul is talking about that remnant that had not bowed the knee to Baal, uh, he's talking about the church there, the 700, the elect of God um, who had not succumbed to the uh, rebellion, which is true in every time period of the nation of Israel. Uh, the wilderness time period that I talked about, uh, there really were less than five faithful people. Think of Joshua uh, and Caleb, and obviously Moses uh, was faithful, and there may have been a couple others um, that are mentioned indirectly, but the nation did not believe. Um, they're not converted. They're destined for hell. They rejected the promises that God made through their uh, lack of obedience. Um, so again, uh, the church has always been present and existing. Uh, instead of using the word church, I use the word elect. Um, that the elect have always been present from every time and that the elect were Israel, truly in the clearest sense, in the midst of that physical nation of Israel. And that when the new covenant came in, that elect equal the church. The church, uh, the word church in the Greek is the word ekklesia, which means the called out ones, the chosen ones. Um, so yeah, there is no replacement of, of Israel. Uh, there is a revelation that the promises made to Israel are fulfilled in Christ. And they had to believe in him, uh, in the one who, that those covenants were pointing to completely uh, from the beginning. Uh, but their rejection of him uh, revealed their lack of belief. Um, but Romans 11, I think, is one of the most important chapters. You know, God has not failed in his purpose toward Israel because Israelites have believed, Jews have believed, uh, as have Gentiles. Mike. Amen. It's a very different way of understanding the Old Testament. Um, dispensationalism is a, a radically new way of understanding and interpreting scripture. It's really only been around for about 120 and 130 years. Before that, uh, there was uh, no point in church history where the scriptures were interpreted uh, in any way similar to that. Um, and the view that, that I'm presenting, uh, which is the, the view that the reformers believe, um, you see that taught all the way back to the beginning. And I believe the Apostle Paul very clearly advocates for it. Uh, in the future, uh, I hope to uh, defend uh, the idea that um, the church is Israel. Um, and and that, that's uh, an important point. Um, and just a little bit outside of my scope today. But I appreciate your question, Kelly. Um, it's, a, it's an important question. It's one worth asking. Yep. 
so that's a that's an interesting chapter and it's it's obviously very that chapter must be read through the lens of the Old Testament covenants and that God had given the people access to the gospel greater than any of the other nations of the earth, uh, but they still had to believe and be regenerated and repent in order to remain in the vine, which is why um, it does not bear fruit. It's taken out and burned in the fire. And so the Jews had that, that really their only privilege was greater access to the gospel, but they had to believe they had to be regenerated, which is something they couldn't control. It's the Spirit's work. Um, if that didn't happen, then they were cut off. Um, and the, the Jews that were there and believed remain. Uh, the Gentiles, that the new covenant is uh, given and opens wide access to the gospel, even than the Jews had ever experienced, um, brings the Gentiles in. We shouldn't read that passage and think, that there was no way for a Gentile to be saved under the Old Covenant. A Gentile could be saved and not be under the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, or the Davidic Covenant. That was very possible. Um, we'll talk about uh, the fact that there were people who were believing and not under the Abrahamic Covenant, even at the time in which it was inaugurated. Um, there were multiple patriarchs still alive um, who were known for being righteous men. Um, they were not in that covenant. So it, it's a different way of reading um, the Old Testament. I grew up in a dispensationalist background. Um, and so my journey in growing my knowledge of scripture has very clearly led me away from that. Um, and I think that it's, it's important to be asking these questions, Kelly. So I appreciate you asking. And uh, I, I do intend to deal with that more thoroughly for you uh, and for others as well in the near future. I know we'll probably get into it more with the Mosaic Covenant, but I just want to make sure I'm understanding this. The covenant was that they had to not only keep the Ten Commandments, but every ceremony was with the law. Yes, perfectly. So, I mean, literally, as soon as it was ratified, they failed. Yes, yeah. because they're already guilty of Adam's sin, which right, means yeah. they're covenant breakers. Yeah. So, exactly. But yet, God still chose to grant them the blessing mm -hmm. of giving them Yes. And remain equal. Yes. You so see the I grace of God. What's the change there that was it just that they got so bad? Or was it that there was the remnant and then that remnant got so small that then he was like, all right, everybody else is gone. What what was it that broke the camel's back that made God say, All right, we don't get this anymore? Well, I think you see uh, a progression, not just from going through the motions and keeping the law of God. Um, and we see some evidence of that. You know, I'm, I'm tired of your sacrifices and your feasts because you're just going through it externally to then progressing towards uh, not just worshiping God outside of the means that he's prescribed, but actually worshiping false gods in replace of uh, the one true God. Um, it's really hard in scripture to know where is that line. Um, and I think that the answer is, I don't think there is a line. Um, any law-breaking, any covenant violation is worthy of them immediately being cut off and killed on the spot. The only reason why you see uh, time transpiring and these prophets going to the people is God's mercy and patience and kindness, um, which was preaching the gospel to them. Josh? Oh, sorry. Did oh. you say that the parable of the vineyard where the master of the vineyard keeps sending servants and the people... Yes. <laughs> yes. Yep. That. That is the nation of Israel. Chasing his tail, trying to figure out 
which comes first, you know. Yes. You, you were right, Kelly. There are Jews throughout history and even today that have believed. Um, and it's the grace of God. Um, and there will be Jews still to believe. Um, God's purpose uh, and promises to the Jews have not failed. Right. Until the time of the Gentiles pass, um, is over. Isn't that just the... Yeah, I, I know what you're getting at, and um, my understanding of uh, that particular teaching is that um, the present time is the time of the church age, and that Jews and Gentiles are saved all the way up until the end. Uh, I do not believe in a future mass conversion of the Jews. I do not believe scripture teaches that. Um, I believe that that is not the case because there is no difference between Jew and Greek today. There is no difference for a Jew living today. Um, they have no promises made to them uh, that are not also in the possession of the Gentiles. Um, so I believe that Jews and Gentiles are going to be saved all the way up until the end. And then the last one ordained to eternal life is converted. The doors are shut. Um, I believe that God can do miraculous things, saving many people in uh, a small space of time. Uh, I do not believe that there is a, a future mass conversion of the Jews. Mike. Some good ones, Mike, too. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, what I was taught, and this all is new, Douglas theology is all new to me, and, you know, and I, you know, I'm getting in reformed as the millennial reign has already begun, mm -hmm. things like that, which I was taught in the future as a rapture, and I mean, all this stuff like mm -hmm. that, and I'm kind of trying to undo all that I've been taught, and every time I'm like, mm, these witnesses, and These things are difficult. Um, you were hinting at it strongly, Mike, the overlap and the connections between covenant theology and eschatology. There's some major, major points where they overlap, uh, which is why after this covenant theology study, I would like to move into some areas of eschatology, um, dealing with uh, Israel and the church. Um, what does the future look like for us as believers? I believe if you read Revelation properly, uh, the way that the Reformers and the Puritans read it, um, it's very easy to see there is no future purpose for the nation of Israel in light of the covenant theology. Because Israel is the church, always has been. Um, so it's just there's so many different things to cover in connection with covenant theology. Uh, it, it's hard to deal with all of them. And so um, five years from now, we'll series. <laughs> we'll see how long uh, how long things take. My hope, though, through this is that um, we grow in our understanding of Scripture, interpreting Scripture, rightly understanding what the promises that God made to Israel in the past truly mean and truly promised, because there is a, an incredible amount of confusion out there today. Um, Israel is seen as, as still being the people of God and worthy of um, greater protection and, and all of that. Um, I believe that any nation that's being targeted should be protected for the good and welfare of any people. I don't believe the Jews have any greater significance today than any other country. The promises God has made to them have been fulfilled in Christ. There's no difference between Jew and Jew. I just wanted to sort of 
they open answer this question that Jack asked. Yes. About you know what is it that finds his name God. This might help us in Genesis 15 and verse 16. Um, particularly to begin in verse 13. This is uh, God speaking to Abram. He said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and will serve them, and they will afflict them 400 years. And also the nation whom they save I will judge. Afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Now as for you, you shall go to your father's But in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So um, the, the implication there is that God in his grace and in his mercy, he, he gives the Amorites this particular time. Yes. Time finished. There is no, there is no judgment. Yes. And then the people come. And that helps us to look at the you know, question of why God, if they have faith, mercy and patience that's waiting, yes. and then when he decides they've had it, that's it. Helps us to understand the patience of God with the nation of Israel, because yes. in, in just terms that are very clear, the Amorites were under the same moral law that the nation of Israel was. And the Amorites violated it. And the nation of Israel violated it. Uh, we don't know the, the level of equalness in violating the covenant, but we know the nation of Israel went very, very far. They're very wicked. Um, but yet God has mercy on whom he has mercy. Compassion upon whom he has compassion. And it should encourage us as, as we look at scripture that God is not a God of, um, of immediate retribution, even though he would be just. We see that sometimes, immediate retribution. Um, but so often we see such patience, such long-suffering. 400 years for the Amorites to repent and believe. So, God is a God of mercy, but he's also a God of justice. He is a God who is a God of his word. Um, my hope is that as we continue on in this study, that we will see the uh, the character of God displayed before us in his covenanting and relationshiping with men. Um, God has been abundantly gracious. Um, next time we'll uh, move on to further material. We're going to begin making distinctions um, that are designed to help us when we begin looking at covenants in detail. Uh, we're going to be looking at uh, next week, the two different types of situations in the covenant, different types of conditions, and if we get far enough, um, the different types of promises um, that will help us in looking at these covenants to rightly understand them. Um, because there's a huge difference between a temporal promise and a spiritual promise. Um, very, very big difference between a condition that is works-based and a condition that's merit, uh, that's gracious. Um, those things are going to really help us. Um, and I hope that they'll be helpful to you as, as we think more about the covenants. So.